I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shifters who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello and welcome to a, another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I have an extremely special guest with me. Um, this is someone who I would say if I could count on one hand who have been, you know, some of the most influential people in my life in terms of influencing the woman, the woman that I'm becoming, this person is definitely high up, high up there on that top five. Um, I'm talking about my mentor, Dr. Frantonia Pollins. I am so excited to have her here today. Um, we're going to try not to cry during <laughs> the conversation, but we never know where it could go. Um, but let me introduce you to her first. The unapologetic voice for feminine leadership and entrepreneurial success, Dr. Frantonia Pollens is one of the most highly requested globally sought speakers and transformational, co transformational coaches in the industry. Her TEDx talk has been hailed as powerfully thought-provoking with a transparency that is absolutely riveting, a paradigm-shifting conversation on women's empowerment and feminine leadership whose time has come. A once homeless single mother, Dr. Frantonia gives us all a front row seat at how she uses her own captivating life story of surviving a tragic medical catastrophe and overcoming unimaginable adversity as a compelling example of how her commitment to personal, spiritual, professional, and psychosexual development transformed every area of her life, empowering her to go from zero clients to six figures in one year. Since then, she has built several successful businesses, and for the past 17 years, she has been on a big mission to empower one million women worldwide to conquer their fears about money and wealth, inspire them to discover their own uniquely divine and powerful purpose on the planet, and guide them as they create successful businesses that transform the world and leave a multi-generational legacy of wealth author of the ever popular hashtag first lady wisdom series, Dr. Frantonia, who is affectionately known as the first lady of empowerment is the founder and headmistress of the first lady lifestyle and leadership Academy, where her signature program, the art, the high art of womanhood, a powerful and groundbreaking journey through the mastery of self has been instrumental in success successfully guiding hundreds high achieving women across the globe to unleash the unapologetic power of pleasure, self-care, core confidence, creativity, entrepreneurship, and feminine leadership. A multi-published author, Dr. Frantonia eagerly anticipates the 2019 release of her forthcoming book, which is called The Sexy Side of Success, Redefining Feminine Leadership from the Boardroom to the Bedroom. This past August, Dr. Pollins hosted an assembly of 150 powerful women for the inaugural The State of Womanhood Empowerment Weekend, 
and this year's theme was empowering the whole woman mind body and business this woman is a quiet powerhouse she is my mentor she is the person who keeps me sane and grounded and on track and um, is the reason why I'm able to do the work that I do in the way that I do it. So uh, it's with so much pleasure and gratitude that I welcome Dr. Frantonia to the show. Welcome, Frantonia. Hello, Layla. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you I, so uh, much. I have been eagerly awaiting this moment. <laughs> yes, yes. We, uh, we talk every two weeks, um, but this will be the first time that we do it with other people listening. Yes. Yeah. So I'm excited for my listeners to get to be a fly on, on the wall um, in this conversation, because as I've said a number of times now, you have been so influential in my journey. And I know a lot of the times we can look at people who we see as leaders and think, you know, who, how, how are they able to do what they do and who's their support team? And so I am able to do what I do because I have a strong support team and you are one of those number one, you know, players on that. So I'm excited for people to get to learn some of the things that I've had the pleasure of being able to learn through, from you. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to actually um, to be of service to you, Layla, and to help support you in the work that you share with the world. So it's an honor. Thank you. Okay. Our very first question, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? Wow. That is a, <laughs> wow. Powerful question. Um, the very first person that comes to my mind is my mother, my mm. mother, um, my mother, because she and her mother and her mother and her mother before her survived so that I could be here. Yeah. Um, the next would be my father. Uh, these are living. Both my parents are still with me. Um, my father, um, for giving me the grounding and, and the knowing, the deep knowing within that I can overcome any obstacle that life puts in my path um, because my father gave me the gift of watching him um, on his journey. My granny Gracie, <laughs> anytime you see me uh, quote anything on social media or you hear me say my granny used to say, I'm talking about my granny Gracie. My granny Gracie was, um, I say the original Medea. Mm. She had a quick wit and a sharp tongue and a loving heart and a no-nonsense approach to creating success in her life. And then from a business perspective, um, I've always had a deep, deep admiration for Madam C.J. Walker. Um, Madam C.J. Walker has um, been widely hailed as the first um, Black woman millionaire in the U.S. And the history books that we get don't tell us this, but she is uh, the godmother, the originator of what we now know as direct sales. So when you see your Avon lady or when you see, you know, your Tupperware lady, that business model was created by Madam C.J. Walker. One generation out of slavery, um, a widow and a single mother by the time she was 19 years of age, 
she wanted, went on and created a multi-million dollar uh, business enterprise in the beauty industry. She was a philanthropist um, at the time, um, working in the anti-lynching movement, um, and then went on to share that model with hundreds of other women at the time to help them become uh, financially secure and create a financial uh, legacy. And then finally, um, off top of my head, would be um, Dr. Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. And so I'll say this, I love Dr. Maya Angelou for all of the reasons that the rest of us do. Her deep wisdom, her writings, her poetry, um, the, her ability to be everybody's, you know, your virtual, your virtual grandma, right? That deep wisdom. But the part of, I won't say but, and the other part of Dr. Maya Angelou that I so deeply admire is that she never denies any part of her journey. So being a dancer, being a, a burlesque dancer, being a, um, what we would call a woman of the night, uh, working in the sex trade industry, that all of that was part of the journey that created the woman that we ultimately got to see in the end and admire at the end, in the end, the woman who became poet laureate um, um, at presidential inaugurations. All of that was part of her journey. And although the media would like to whitewash it, she never did. And I love and admire that about her um, as, as one of the ancestors that um, has transitioned that I hold dear to my heart. Mm, I love this. And you, I know you have spoken to me about the importance of having a kind of virtual uh, council of advisors. And so I always think of you when I think of kind of the ancestors that surround me, because I think of these people whose wisdom I'm drawing from, whether they're alive or past. And, and you taught me the importance of having them there and for what specific purpose, right? Absolutely. Like, what am I trying to learn from them? So you talked about Madam C.J. Walker and what specifically, you know, she's had this amazing story, but the part that really calls to you is, is from her wealth building perspective and where she was coming from and what she was able to create. Absolutely, because a lot of times we will admire the end result. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll choose a mentor, a, a, a literal, um, somebody that exists in our, in our physical space or a virtual mentor, somebody we see in the online space or an ancestor um, who is transitioned. And we admire the end result, the final accomplishment, but we never really get to know the journey, mm. right? We never get to know the journey outside of the 30-second um, snippet or clip or, you know, the uh, BuzzFeed video that shows up um, on our social media timeline, but really exploring the history of that person, their life, who they had to become in their personal journey of transformation in order to create the end result that we are taught to um, give so much reverence and respect to. And so for me, particularly uh, with, the, you know, with the people that I've mentioned, and there are, there are others, but with the people that I mentioned, they all had an incredible story, an incredible backstory that had they not found the fortitude within to overcome that story, harvest the lessons from that story, and then um, utilize what they learned in service to, first and foremost, their own self-survival their own self-actualization and then pouring some of that into the the mission and the vision that they were given to serve the world, we wouldn't know about them. Had they not survived the journey and become the person. Right. And it's so important to look at 
the whole, the whole journey, the whole journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I started working with you. I was just thinking, and it's been almost a year. We'll be coming up to a year, probably a year once this episode airs when people are listening. <laughs> and, um, I came to you, I, I always say to you, I came to you on my knees, burnt out, exhausted, um, angry in grieving. And at the end of my tether, um, and I came to you because I had had, I had observed you and I had observed that you were a woman who, when everyone else is going right, you're going left. When everyone else is throwing their arms up in the air and saying, this is terrible, you were calm and cool and collected. And I have a, I have a very calm and cool and collected father. Um, you actually, I'm thinking about it. You actually have a very similar temperament to him. Um, but you, what, what I was looking for was, I know that I'm not in a good place right now. How I'm showing up, how I'm presenting, the, the space that I'm in is not reflective of the woman that I know I am. And it's certainly not, not reflective of the leader that I know I am. And, um, and so we, that, so that's the, that's how we started working together together for anyone who's curious as to how we, uh, how we started our journey (laughs) together. Um, and what I have, what I learned very quickly was you were going to make me focus on things which I didn't think were important. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I was looking for how can we sort this out quickly so I can just move on with my journey and go write a book and go do this and go do that and go be that out in the world. And you flipped it all for me. And it's, so it's interesting that we're, that I'm hosting this podcast, you know, around good ancestorship, because something that I've learned through this journey is it's not just about the thing that you've created in the outer world. It's not just about the book that you've published. It's not just about the viral, whatever that you've done. It, all of that comes from who you are being. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny as you were telling the story of how we came to how we came to work together. I remember that day when getting the inbox message from you. Yeah, and I was like, Help. "Really? <laughs> yeah." I was like, really? And the reason the reason that I responded that way for your listeners is, um, I I so in in total transparency, I was in a place where I was ready to leave the coaching industry, and I'm air quoting um, because you all can't see me. I was sick of the coaching industry. I was sick of the the, the very thing you're talking about, the external facade, um, pretty pictures, beautiful website, great branding, great marketing, without the internal work and transformation. So my doctorate is in metaphysical psychology. So I am studying the thing beyond the thing, the, the beyond the physical, that's what metaphysical means, beyond the physical, the first cause, the, the what we call the genesis energy of a thing, the mm-hmm. reason behind the reason, behind the reason. And so my coaching style, as Layla just said, I thought I was going to jump in and she was just going to walk me through how to quickly get through this. My coaching style is, and I, I've jokingly said this for years, is that I ask questions seven layers deep. Yes. I see what other people don't see. 
I ask for um, my clients to um, sometimes do a deeper examination of themselves, their own drivers, their own motivation um, than they have ever done before. And so because of that, I often say, I'm not everybody's coach because this is work that is difficult, right? It can often be scary. Um, and for a lot of people who are connected to the coaching industry, where their focus is on that external, pretty polished presentation, um, they view this type of work as unnecessary. Mm. And it is my contention, particularly as we see, you know, globally, we see women rising into positions of power and leadership, whatever that means. And I'm, I mean that facetiously and I mean that literally, whatever that means, if we do not begin to examine underneath. And so when Layla said, when I came to you, that is critical. I want to say it again. It is critical. Now, I didn't have a website up. No. I wasn't marketing. <laughs> I wasn't marketing. Right. I was not marketing. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't that she went to a website and saw pretty pictures or a great ad copy or any of that. She observed my being. Yeah. She observed the way that I be. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know and any of your clients or anything like that. I just saw none you. None of that. Yeah. But what is so critical is that that Layla had the self-awareness to say, hey, I am, I am in this position of leadership. I am, I am invested in doing this work in the world and something doesn't feel right. Yeah. And that she did not let the label or the title leader keep her from looking for and asking for support. Yeah. And that is critical because here, here's what my concern is, as I observe, um, and I often go back to this quote that the Dalai Lama shared um, a few years ago when he said, the Western woman will save the world. And immediately the metaphysician in me said, well, who the hell is going to save the Western woman? Mm. Because if leadership was never in, intended for us as women, because of patriarchal constructs, you know, whatever. If it was never intended for us, where's the blueprint? Where's the model? Where's the model for what leadership is? The model is what we've seen. And so we become what we've seen if we do not dive deep and do this internal transformational work of self-defining and really questioning, is that really what I think? Is that really how I feel about this? Why did I respond that way? How come what she said on that post pissed me off? How come, like, if we don't really begin to explore that. And so at the time when Layla came to me, that's the place she was in. That's the place she was in. And, you know, like I said, I remember that day distinctly. And I was like, whoa, okay, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I was literally on the verge of shutting it all down. Um, I have a 30-year background in the beauty industry. And I could go, I could go teach in the beauty industry, very specific, right? In the beauty, and that's where I was, to be very very honest, that's where I was um, in that space. Um, and Layla showed up and a couple of other people showed up in the same exact way. And I was like, okay, well, there must be something about how I be <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that, is not, that is not being modeled 
Yeah. That yes. is not being modeled that resonates and, um, and that there are people who are ready to do, do that kind of work. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and it's, um, I'm just, you know, just recalling just kind of, you know, that journey of there and that time. And I think it was a, a couple of, I think, about a month ago, I said to you something like, I remember at the time and I kept questioning, how is Frantonia that way? And now I get it <laughs> because I'm further along on my journey that I'm able to access more of that um, being that I was hungry for. Um, because for me, you know, I, I really understand that leadership is not just about the acts that the external acts that you're doing in the world it's the the foundation is how you be is how you're being and then everything else will pour out of that so if 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 what's inside is is rotten what's going to pour out is rotten if what's inside is strong and stable what's going to pour out is strong and stable and i have seen that in myself um through this journey that we've been on together so far that um it, there's just a whole different energy to how I'm able to navigate because, you know, I'm doing, I'm not an activist or an educator, but I'm doing my work in the social justice space. You, you're not a, your work is not in the social justice space, but I, mm. but I am. Um, mm. And it, it can be very toxic and, um, and especially for black women, very exhausting. Um, and I was looking for a way to be able to stay inside of my integrity, inside of my values, to keep my creativity, you know, going um, and not compromise myself and not burn out. And I was failing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, and it's funny because part of, part of during that period of time, part of what I was, what I was observing in the, you know, in the social media space, there was a lot going on, um, globally around, you know, racism and acts of violence against um, people of color. And then particularly in our industry, personal development and coaching, there were all of these microaggressions and all of these um, situations where we weren't present. So if it was a conference and there were, you know, 20, top 20, and I've been, this is something I've been saying for, you know, for years, and I would often find myself the only person of color um, sitting at a, you know, at a high level mastermind working, you know, with people. And when I would bring up the, the question, well, wait a minute. So, you know, we're about to do, we're about to do this uh, telesummit and you've got the top 25, you know, women's empowerment, and you couldn't find one that had any melanin None, <laughs> not one, Zero, right? Across the whole globe, um, and and it would and it would bother me deeply. And so during that period of time, there was a lot of that going on in the internet space and being called out. And there was all of these, you know, um, these very heated and volatile conversations taking place. And so I would sit back and observe. And as much as I was observing. Um, the behavior of, you know, those expressing white fragility and those who did not understand their white privilege um, and how, how harmful in the way they were showing up was. I observed us. Yeah. When I say us, I mean women of color, people of color, um, specifically black women. And because I 
um, the, the, the kind of work I do is mind, body, spirit, and business. I observe that in those spaces where we are deeply angry, that we lose our power. And I don't mean our power, our external power to the world. I mean our internal power. I mean the, the power that this, this body holds, the activation, the, um, the animation, and that that power, the loss of power through anger, the loss of power through rage, renders us powerless to even change our own lives because the focus is external. I'm focusing externally on what, what others have done. And that's not to say that there should not be, you know, a push against, um, you know, an anti, that there shouldn't be an anti-racism movement or any of that. What I was observing is us getting lost in the rage, losing the individual in the rage, losing, I'm seeing people, I'm losing sleep. I can't stop crying. My heart is pacing. I'm listening. I'm watching people post these types of things and understanding in the work that I do how that physiological um, experience of the rage and the anger and that, that if that goes on perpetually, that goes on perpetually, it becomes the disease in the body. Mm-hmm. So, we're seeing the numbers go up and you know, so many diseases um, with, with, with black folks and, and black women, that trauma sets in and it changes the way that we view the world. It changes the way that we see ourselves. Then we begin to bond around our trauma and we don't move out of that trauma bonding. And so now I begin to connect with other people who are stuck in that trauma bonding. And as I observed, I'm saying, who's holding space here? There is a place for righteous indignation. There is a place for it. None of the changes that we've seen would have ever come about without righteous indignation. My concern was that we were getting lost in the rage and we were stuck there in the rage. Yeah. And so that's what you observed. Um, and that me learning that came through my own journey, <laughs> my own journey of experiencing a rage at some point in time in my life that I couldn't find the words to describe. I just got lost in the rage. Um, and so knowing what that, knowing what that will do to first you, the physical, the physical body, the person, what it'll do to your surroundings, your relationships, your family, your business, all of those things if you do not get a, a hold of it. Um, that's what I w- was observing. And yeah. yeah, I think that's really key there. What you said about getting lost in the rage because what I learned as we worked together was it's not about bypassing anything, right? Each part of you and every emotion and everything your experiences is your humanity. That is, that is your wholeness. Um, It wasn't about saying, well, I just won't get angry then because being angry is affecting me in these ways. It was more about exactly as you said, like I am lost in the anger. There is no space for anything else. That was my, that was my experience. Mm -hmm. There was no space for anything else. I had, I, I was lost. And now the space that I come from is the anger is channeled into work to change the things that have made me angry. Yes. Right. So whereas before 
and this is again um you know everything that we're sharing here this is just my experience and everyone should um everyone has the right to approach things the, the way that they choose to and, th and there's no judgment on how anyone approaches anything but what right. i have learned to do is when something pops up and it's like oh that that <laughs> fire you know starts inside of me and and the righteous indignation and the anger and the rage comes up i focus on the fact that if it's not if it's not this then it's that you know that this work around um racism if it's not one person today doing something it's going to be another and so rather than getting rather than focusing all of my energy on that one thing and then getting burnt out, I look at what is the greater work that I'm doing. So for example, my me and white supremacy workbook, you know, there's been many times now where I'm just like, you know what, I don't need to engage there because I wrote, I've written a whole book about it. You know, if, and if people want to do the work that everything that I needed to say about this so far is there. So I don't need to right now, get hooked again on something when I know where it's going to go. I know what's going to happen. We're going to have this discussion and then why fragility is going to come up and silencing is going to come up and tone policing is going to come up and I know what's going to happen. And so it's like, I, I, I learned to start observing myself. Yes. Yeah. That's what, that's what I mean when I always say manage, manage your expectations. You always tell me to manage my expectations. Always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so to me, here's here's what manage your expectations would look like in that situation, in a situation similar to what you just described. Um, and I want to I want to take a couple of steps back for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, my, the core principle upon which I um, mentor, my core belief, which is which is what my brand is about, First Lady, is that in this life. Here's what I believe. I believe that each of us come here with our own uniquely divine and powerful purpose, right? And that this vehicle, this body is, this is a vehicle through which I will deliver that work, that purpose, live out that purpose to the world. This mind um, is, is the space through which those ideas will download um, between conversation between me and the divine and that, that it will download. And so I need to, I need to make sure that I'm taking care of my mind and my body and that I am that I'm monitoring um, the energy that comes into my experience and who I allow into my space. And so that means that I center myself. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, for, for many years and even now, you know, it's been, it, that's been almost a jolting and shocking idea when I say it quite often to people and specifically to women that I center myself. I center myself because I am the, me in the relationship with the divine. This is the, this is the hub out of which all of those, um, the ways that I serve the world it comes through this vessel that I, that I, um, you know, that I avail to the divine. And so if I do not take care of myself, if, if I do not center myself, um, if I do not, when, when an experience shows up, check in with myself, it is my opinion that when I go out into the world and I'm chasing down each new fire, because as you said, there's every day, there's going to be something new. I'm chasing down every new fire without first checking in with myself based on my own personal constitution, my own set of boundaries and guidelines. 
To me, that means that I have centered other people when I am reacting to what is going on out there in the world versus checking in with my uniquely divine and powerful purpose here, making sure that it is in alignment with what is going on and then responding to that situation in a way that protects me, that centers me. So for example, what you do, uh, what you do so beautifully is your conversation is, is center BIPOC, right? Mm -hmm. And if white women want to observe or other people want to observe and contribute or observe and learn, they can do that. But, but it doesn't shift the conversation to center someone else. It doesn't shift the conversation so that I'm now reacting, reacting, chasing down every, because they're going to be there. Your microaggressions are going to be there. Your blatant aggressions are going to be there. And now I get to do my work in the world, take a deep breath hmm. and go engage in my pleasure practice, go love on my babies, go love on my husband, right? I get to go do those things without carrying that rage around me with me everywhere I go, because I'm now being, I'm no longer being led around in a reactionary way that centers white supremacy. Yeah. It, I no longer center what works for, you know, as uh, Catrice would say, for Becky. I, I no longer do that. I center what works for me. And I do this work in the world in a way that I don't see myself as less than. So I don't need to react or respond to what you're doing. Because I'm over here doing my work. You get to get this work. You get to learn from this work. You don't get to alter this work. Mm -hmm. You don't get to center yourself in my work. Yes. I'm like, yes. <laughs> because if, if anyone, you know, if you've been, if you follow me on social media, if you're listening to what Dr. Frantoni is saying, then you will hear the echoes of, I am echoing what I, ha what I have learned through, through Dr. Frantonia, which is that I center myself first. And that was, something that I was never taught to do because none of us are taught to do that, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a black woman. Um, and that is something that I have learned to do. And, and so when I said earlier that when we first started working together, you had me doing work that I was like, why are we doing this? And <laughs> now I look back and I'm like, oh, because she was teaching me the art of learning to center myself. So one of the first things that you put me on, which I'm actually do doing again right now, is a 30-day pleasure practice. And I remember at the time you told me, because I said, to, I remember saying to you, like, I feel like I'm always wearing armor. I feel like every day I go into battle and I'm fighting. And you said something to me, well, you said something like, when there's a fight happening and people who are looking to who's going to be fighting, they're going to look to the person who's wearing the armor. So if you're already wearing the armor, then of course people are going to come to you and say, come join the fight because you're wearing the armor. You've got the, you've got the battle gear ready. You've got the weapons in your hand. Um, and, you, and I remember you told me, you need to take the armor off. You need to step away from the battle. You need to focus on your pleasure. And you're going to do a 30-day pleasure practice. And my mind was blown because it was like, how can I focus, how can I step away when all of this is so important? Um, how can I say, I'm not going to do that anymore and I'm just going to focus on what makes me happy. And now I'm like, oh, because what, because that has to come first. 
So let me, I just want to, again, because your audience can't see me, I'm literally, um, I just felt like a, a jolt of, of energy go through me and I am tearing up. And here's why, Layla, because what you just said about um, the armoring up, right, the armoring up and, and my response to you is that um, when the battle comes, you know, who are they going to seek to put on the front line but the person who's armored up? And across the, across the diaspora, and I live here in the United States, and so in the United States, quite often in the midst of um, a lot of the, the, the racial injustice situations that, you know, that have happened here on the front line were Black women. And because I teach, um, in addition to personal development and mindset, I, I teach the art of womanhood. Mm -hmm. I, what, what I have observed is that pleasure, joy, peace, fun, glee, bliss has, has become one of those things that for Black women has become an afterthought. And so it's interesting because on one hand, we often are in the media saying to the dominant culture that we are not a monolith. I just watched a brilliant speech from Viola Davis. Mm. Um, if you haven't seen the entire, so I think it's like a, like a 20-minute speech where she talks about how the media, Hollywood in particular, um, tends to tame black women. And what I began to observe during that period of time is that the rage that was showing up, the fear, the anger, the pain, that each time there was a, a, new, a new layer of armor, a new layer of armor being put on. Right. And so again, I had to reference back to my own experience of when I was armored up that way what it cost me as a human being, what it cost me in my humanity, what it cost me in my womanhood, um, the access to the wholeness of myself that was cut off because I, I lived in constant reaction to what was going on that was a violation to me, that was oppressive to me, that was harmful and hurtful to me. And so I armored up and what I know for sure, what I know for sure is that there is a way for us to show up and do the difficult work. There's a way for us to show up and, and dismantle systems. There's a way for us to show up and claim, decree and claim our power without losing access to the wholeness of who we are as women the wholeness of who we are as human beings. And so that was, you know, when you said that to me that day and I thought, you know, I also asked you another question, you know, because I, because I do, I do include the, the you know, the psychosexual part of it. I'll, I'll allow you to guide that part of the conversation if you so choose, but, but there, there is an access to the deep, pleasure the deep ple just of life I, I, right, right right i can ask my daughter to send me a text but my my 
my text tone on my phone is a giggling baby, right? And mm -hmm. every time it goes off, if I'm in public, people around me look around and then inevitably people begin to, to laugh. And it's on purpose, intentional, because there was, during that period of time, I was like, there's so much in the world going on that steals our joy. There's so much going on, on in the world that has us so focused and we're so serious all the time. And we're so, you know, um, destination driven, right? When I get this promotion, when I get this raise, when I, you know, publish this book, when I get this coaching client, when I, we're so destination driven that we forget the moments in life where pleasure and joy show up. I mean, every time you post a picture of your children, the smile on their faces, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so the pleasure practice is, you know, it's part of, it's part of uh, another program that I have, but it's intentional. And I'll tell you, Layla, the reaction you had is a reaction that almost every woman I've given that to has had. They think it's obsolete. It doesn't matter. I don't have time for that. It doesn't make sense. I remember asking a lady one time, just go get a scoop of ice cream. And she's like, well, what the hell am I celebrating and getting ice cream for if I haven't hit my million dollar goal? I'm like, wow, that's what we've created. And so the, that, the idea of intentionally creating pleasure in your life yeah. to me is non-negotiable. Yeah. And, and I just want to piggy bank off of that, yeah. which is one of the things that I have learned as well from you is that my, um, my joy and my pleasure are not an act of resistance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I know that that can be a controversial idea for some folks, but you know, um, I'm in this space now where I am, um, I'm looking at some of the memes that we post sometimes and that we celebrate and I'm like, wait, wait a minute, wait, I want to, I want to ask some more questions before I celebrate that. Right. And so, um, not long ago, one of them that I was seeing consistently going around was in reference to, um, you know, black women saying that their self care was, was an act of resistance. Which is, um, which is love. Audrey Lord. Yeah. 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 Well, Yes, it is, it, is an, it is an Audre Lorde quote. Um, and so I question, I question that to the extent of the way it's being represented. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times the original intention could be 100% factual in that space and time. The way that it is often represented so I'm mad at white folks, and I'm going to say my, my self-care, me going to the spa is an act of resistance. And in my mind, it means that I've centered how they define me. Right. In and, a world and, where... And, I was going to say, and that it's... And I think we talked about this recently, that that's still the language of warfare. And so joy and pleasure is being presented in the language of warfare. Absolutely. And so the, the specific, I, I wish I could find the exact quote. The one that I'm the one that triggered me making a post one day, wasn't the Audrey Lord quote. It was, it was specifically something somebody put up about like, honestly going, you know, going to the spa or, you know, uh, taking a vacation and, because of the way that other people see us, we're not supposed to do this. And I'm thinking, that to me, that means that I had to first center 
your definition of me and say, I'm going to revolt against your definition of me. I don't give a damn about your definition of me. Right. I don't, mm. I don't center other people's definition of me. And if we're speaking specifically about the space of, you know, uh, white supremacy and racism, I don't center the way that white supremacy defines me. I don't. And so for me, on my calendar, once a month, I go spend eight hours at the spa. I am not thinking about white people. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm right. not. I'm not. Imagine. <laughs> I am doing that because it feels good to me. I am mm-hmm. doing that because it honors me. Yeah. I'm doing it because it helps me reset. Sometimes I do it as a reward to myself. But trust me, when I am in that space of, of self, my, of my pleasure practice, when I'm in the space of self-love, when I am in the space of self-care, it is not an act of resistance against. And I think that sometimes in, in today's time, that comes from what we just talked about, that if I'm, if I'm stuck in the space of anger and I'm in warfare, armored up, every day fighting against, then the idea that I take an hour or two hours, see, I do eight hours. I have other people I've tried to take with me to the spa and they can't do eight hours for something. <laughs> and that, that, that to me, I believe is also um, a testament to um, programming we have around you've got to work twice as hard, that you can't take a break because that means you're lazy. It means you're not, there's so much, mm-hmm. again, in those seven layers deep. But the idea that when I go to take care of myself, when I go uh, on vacation, when I go lay on the beach, when I, that that has anything to do with centering other people. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Um, one of the um, things that I think has set aside people who we have collectively would look to as good ancestors is that they asked different kinds of questions. They asked different kinds of questions of society around them. Why is this like this? Why, why is this, why is this the way things are? But they also asked different questions for themselves. And one of your amazing skills is your ability to ask questions, as you said, seven layers deep. And something that I observe in myself now that I do as well is to question, 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 question. Um, can we talk a little bit about that, developing that skill? Um, uh, why that's so important when we're thinking about ourselves as leaders, as, as good ancestors, um, and how, I guess, you know, when, in this process for me, I remember you would ask me questions and there would be so much resistance for me. And sometimes still, sometimes still even now, I think we had a session recently. I know. <laughs> we had a session recently and I got, we got to the end and I said, thank you. <laughs> you know, and you were like, I love you too. <laughs> because you asked me questions that challenge my set understanding or beliefs about this is the way things are and that's just how they are. Um, and you really challenged me to stretch my, just stre- you stretch my mind and get me thinking in different ways. And it really opens up the possibilities for me of, oh, maybe 
I am not in this little small space that I thought I was, and there's so much more out there. Can we talk a little bit about the power of questions? Absolutely. So here's the reason I chuckled immediately (laughs) is it took me back to my childhood. I have always been this way. Um, I grew up with three brothers and, um, and tons of, of, of boy cousins. And so I grew up here in Las Vegas, but my, uh, my father's family is from the South. And so every summer, every couple of summers, we'd go down South and there may have been three girl cousins. So me and two other girl cousins. So the boys would get to get, and when I say rural South, um, they would get to go, my grandparents on the corner store in the gas station. Um, and so they get to walk up the road and, you know, they'd get to go play in, you know, play with the animals. And I, and I would always want to go because I grew up with brothers. And so I hung out with my brothers. And so I'm in the South with my cousins. I want to go too. And I'll never forget one day the, the boys are getting ready to go. And I'm, I'm running the house to get my shoes, put my shoes on. And I come back outside and they had left me. And I had to be nine or 10 years old. And I just started crying. And my grandpa, my my granddaddy Richard, came out and was like, why are are you crying? And um, again, rural South. So in the back, they had a big shed with a deep freezer. And in one deep freezer is where they would keep all of the meat. And Mm. in the other deep freezer would be the vegetables. And, you know, um, they had a farm, the vegetables. And my grandpa would buy these um, big, they call them freeze pops, the popsicles in there. Yeah. And so he took me out and I'm crying. He's wiping away my tears and he gives me a freeze pop. First of all, he's like, don't tell the other kids. <laughs> but he says, why are you crying? And I said, you know, they, they left me. They don't want me to come with them. They left me. And he says, well, why did they leave you? And I said, well, they said I talked too much. They said I asked too many questions. And that was the very first time I ever heard the, the quote, a closed mouth don't get fed, is what, the way my grandfather said it. A closed mouth don't get fed. You ask all the questions you want to ask. That's how you learn. Hmm. And at 10 years of age, my grandfather gave me permission to ask questions, permission to see things differently, permission to um, to speak up when something didn't jive with me or I thought there was now throughout my life that created some interesting situations I got kicked out of vacation bible school a couple of times (laughs) what they were teaching didn't make sense to me but but I think that when we don't ask questions we accept someone else's truth we accept somebody else's narrative we accept other people's limitations we expect, you know, you, you, there's a quote that says the history books are written by, are always written by the victor, and I'm paraphrasing, the history books are written by the victor. Well, we get to see now they're rewriting history, and so a lot of us are left out, and so if you don't ask questions, like I have a big question, let me just go here hypothetically, so every successful business owner I've ever met has read Thinking Grow Rich, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, during that period of time, he interviewed all of these very successful people. And again, there wasn't one black person he could interview. <laughs> Where were the successful black people who, who could teach you how to be successful? Who could teach you their system? Who could teach you how they thought? 
right? And so this book, although it's a very powerful book, it's limiting mm. because it doesn't tell you how to overcome racism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell you how to overcome in the, because the book was written in the United States. It doesn't tell you how to, how did you become a millionaire in the face of Jim Crow? Right. Right. And so for me, that's a question that's always been there. Well, where are the white folks? I mean, the black folks that were successful at that time and what would their take on how to create success? What would their take be? What's missing? That's how I've always thought. And so I always encourage my clients, both through the way that I coach um, and in their own lives, begin to question everything. I recently did a, a five-day women, sex, God, and money um, um, mini course. And in that, we talked about womanhood. Is your womanhood performative? Oh, I remember that. that. Like, Whoa, what do you mean? Yeah. How do you define yourself as a woman outside of the roles where you perform for the benefit of other people? Question everything. Mm -hmm. How are you showing up in the world as a black woman? Is that your definition of what it means or was that given to you? And a lot of times it's handed down to us, you know, from our primary caregivers, particularly our mothers, uh, which is why I think sometimes there's, there's, there's often a uh, static in relationships between mothers and daughters because the definition of motherhood or I'm sorry, uh, womanhood that our mothers had fit for the time they were in, the narrative they were living in at the time, it may not fit now. And so it's some, sometimes viewed as a challenge. Mm. Right. But I am, I am always in the space where I encourage people to question everything and to prepare. Again, manage your expectations because look, if there are 10 people over here who are accepting it and they're not questioning it and here you come with all your questions, right. <laughs> you know, expect, mm. expect that people are going to say, well, how come you have to always be that way? Right. Yeah. And that, can I, can we just expand that a little bit? I think that's really important for anyone who's doing, um, uh, work in the world that pushes the comfort zones of the people around you, um, whether you have a big platform or not, right? When you're doing, when you're changing and growing in ways that pushes the comfort zones of people around you who have been used to you being a certain way or have an expectation that you should be a certain way, and then you are not that way, um, that it does create um, a trigger for those people, um, for, for, for want of a better word. And you have taught me, and we, we talked about it earlier, but I, I think it's really important to just expand on it a little bit, this idea of managing our expectations, mm -hmm. right? Um, I had gone to a conference earlier this year, and there was a moment where there was an outburst by a white woman, and there was a very heated conversation, and I had a kind of uh, unexpected fight or flight moment where I was like, I just can't be here. Um, and I was about to bolt out of the room. And I remember coming back home and having the conversation with you and you, you asked me, why were you so triggered? Basically, what was, what was going on? But you also taught me the importance of managing my expectations. And you taught me that the kind of conversations that I'm holding space for will naturally create the exact things that I'm talking about, right, will act, will, will create that negative reaction. And so in learning to expect that, I have managed to better respond instead of react to that. 
Um, but it's something that I come back to constantly is I need to manage my expectations of what mm -hmm. I think just because I'm in this certain place of understanding doesn't mean the person I'm dealing with is in that place of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, if I, if I go back to when you, when you initially said, you know, when you, when you begin to change and begin to do this work or begin to ask questions that the people in your life who have gotten accustomed to you being a certain way will be triggered. I want to go back even further than that because a lot of the, um, a lot of the existing paradigms existed before you existed. Mm -hmm. You know, I talk about this all the time. Um, and, and often in, when I'm speaking or seminars, um, I use the visual, I take a blank sheet of paper and um, I talk about how people will shrink you down to, to being consumable to their existing level of understanding and narrative. And so if I take a blank sheet of paper and let's hypothetically say, Layla, I've never met you, right? You and I have never met. We, we meet in, at a conference. And that something in my mind, I need to understand you. I need to make you safe. I need to make you um, palatable. And mm -hmm. so we, here's how we do it. Um, and I'll speak from a, um, an African-American woman's perspective. It's the experience that I've often had. So we meet and we go, hey, how are you? Um, you know, what kind of work do you do? because I'm, I'm, I'm measuring your value. I'm measuring you. Uh, where do you go to church? And each time that you're, the answer doesn't fit my predefined narrative of you, I fold that piece of paper and I make it smaller. Mm. What sorority do you belong to? Ah, you don't belong to a sorority. I fold that piece of paper because I do. What college did you attend? What kind of car do you drive? Oh, let's, let's talk about the non-verbal ones. We look you up and down and we assess your outfit and your hairstyle. And those are the ways we've been conditioned. That is internalized oppression. Mm -hmm. Because I need to shrink you down and make you controllable, consumable, palatable. Make sense? Right, I and that's to, within all, we all do that. We, we all do that. Yeah. We, we, yeah, absolutely. We all do that. I'm speaking specifically about, about the ways that African-American women do it to each other. Mm. Because, I, because I think sometimes we don't, we don't get the space to expand the ways that we can see each other. Right. We don't get the space to expand because those have been the markers that we've been, been given to judge each other. Now, let's bring in, let's say it's a, a black woman and a white woman. If I am a white woman who is steeped in white privilege and I'm, look, my hair turns folks off. This natural afro. When I was dying it, it turned people off. But now that I've decided to embrace, you know, my, um, my, I call my, my, um, my wisdom highlights, my grace. <laughs> um, because it doesn't fit the definition of womanhood because mm. media gives us this definition of what beautiful women look like, right? Mm. If it doesn't fit that, there are people who would fold the piece of paper. And so when I talk about managing your expectations, it is understanding that there are narratives that were created before we existed, before I was born into this experience, 
there was a narrative. There's an idea that the world holds of what an African, a 50 year old African American never married single mother, what she must be like. Right. Right. There, there, there's a narrative that, you know, the way that she must show up in the world, the way that I need her to show up in the world to justify how I feel about her and how I feel about myself. And so when you either don't show up that way initially, people are jolted because now I can't figure out how to control you, consume you, understand you, navigate you, manipulate you. Or when you did at one time show up and walk out the narrative and you, and you woke up and something said, wait a minute, this doesn't feel good to me anymore. Let me go redefine or define myself for myself. So what I mean when I say manage your expectations is if we look, if we look at this through the lens of you know, the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism that typically shows up when your, when your, when your life is threatened, when you're, when I, and now when I expand the definition of life, your literal life, the life of the world you've created, the life of the, um, the, the narrative of supremacy you've created for yourself. And so if your definition of supremacy, let's specifically say white supremacy says that, um, you've been educated or taught to believe that uh, black women are less educated than you. Black women can't coach you. Right. So you right. know, ne you never invested in a black woman and then you hear a black woman speaking uh, and, and speaking to a narrative or speaking to an experience or speaking, speaking to an opportunity of growth and expansion and healing or business development that you've never heard before. Something in you gets triggered because that has threatened the life of this belief you have. Mm. threaten the life of this idea you have typically what people do when they're the life of a paradigm idea belief that they've held is threatened or challenged they're going to fight you so that's why you get in the threads when we're when we're calling out white fragility or white supremacy you've just threatened the life of a belief that they've held yeah they're gonna fight you on it they're gonna flight they're gonna take off running look i'm out of here i don't need this crap i'm gonna go be like um um, a white spiritual woman teacher who's running for president and say, I don't need, I'm just, yeah, I don't need this. I love you. I said what I said and I'm out of here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't need this. Uh -huh. Don't you know who I am? I'm not going to let you threaten the life of this belief in this paradigm that I've held. Mm. Right. Or I'm going to freeze and do nothing. And so when I say manage your expectations, it is from the space of understanding the, the, the cycle, the cycle that people go through when you've threatened their life, the life of an idea, the life of a paradigm, the life of their um, perceived position of leader, leadership, perceived position of authority. Mm. And so when I say something to someone that triggers, you know, that triggers the life of their belief. I know she's going to read it. She's, she's either going to act a fool. They're going to argue with me. They're going to debate. They're going to leave. Or they're going to do nothing. When I manage my expectations around things like that, that's why what you observed when I would stand back and watch, rarely did I jump in when I did. It yeah. wasn't. Yeah. It was simply to make a statement. It was simply to make a statement to offer uh, a flip of the coin, the other perspective, the other possibility 
to remove the reactionary emotion and speak to the fact and move on. Y'all do with it what you do with it. Because mm-hmm. I've managed my expectations. Now, I could stay there and get caught up in the back and forth and the now I'm mad and now I've shared the, the post with other people and did you see this and I'm tagging people and I am now spreading that, you know, the energy, the virus of this heightened, activated reactionary response, a reaction, uh, you know, to, to the catalyst. And my, and my expectations are all over the place. I don't know what I expect. Right. Because there is a way to do that if you're doing it from a place of intention, but what, and because what I observed for you is from you is when you do say something, anytime you say something, you said it, you thought about what you wanted to say, you've done, you've had the internal conversation and then you're coming from that place, right? You're not, you don't just say things flippantly or just to say them. Um, and again, that really reminds me of my, my father again, cause he's very much like that as well, really measures his words. And so he and you don't, um, are, you're not attached to the response that comes from when you've said what you needed to say. You didn't Absolutely. say what you needed. You didn't say what you said because you were looking for a certain response. You weren't looking for any response. You were just saying Absolutely. what you needed to say. Yeah. So two things on that. I, when you said it earlier, I meant to say this, that I got, I got that from my father as well. Yeah. That, that is, that is, I can certainly attribute that to my father. Um, and then the other thing is, is you're right. So, and, 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 and let me say this, I have not always been that way. Right. Mm -hmm. I have not always been that way. Um, because I think that when you seek on any level, when you seek when you seek validation, when you have a need for validation externally from other folks, that, that what we do, and here, here are the ways that this show up, that we play the conversation out in our head. I'm going to say this, and they're going to say that, and then I get to say this. And right. like, no, 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 no. Right. I used to do that, right? Yeah. When she says this, I'm going to say that. Mm-mm. Or even later, I should have said, <laughs> and then you find a way to get back in the conversation, because, you, because I need to be validated through this back and forth with you. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be validated in what I know to be the truth about me. Mm. Yeah. I don't need to be validated in what I know to be the truth about um, the value of, and, and I'll go back to the example of, of having black um, indigenous people of color present as a speaker and a contributor in your conference. You can take my money as an attendee, but you can't have me present on the stage speaking. Mm. So I don't need to argue with you about that. I know that there's value in having this presence. So what I did, instead of arguing about it, I created my own conference. Right. Right. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say manage your expectations. I know the cycle of, I know the cycle of response that happens when someone's life, literal or the life of an idea or paradigm is threatened. The other part is when they begin to get it and they begin to sincerely do the work, manage your expectations there as well. Right. Because there's gonna be there's gonna be a cycle for that. It's almost like the grieving process where 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 sometimes you and, and this was present in your initial me and white supremacy challenge, the 28 days. Mm-hmm where you would see 
white people's comments where they would express their own anger at what they had been taught to believe right versus this new awareness they were beginning to have it's almost like the grieving cycle it's yes. like finding out somebody lied somebody you trusted lied to you mm -hmm. so even there i say manage your expectations it's still not your job to jump in and do the heavy lifting mm -hmm. do their work do their labor just manage your expectations they're getting ready to go on their own journey as well yeah yeah, everything that you're talking about and everything that you have taught me is it, it comes back to that centering of self, that management of self, that relationship with self. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I love everything that you've shared. I think the last piece that um, I want to touch on is the psychosexual work <laughs> that we talked about earlier, because the, the really interesting thing about you, Franchoni, and I didn't know this when we first, I didn't know anything about your work when we first started working together, right? So it was like, like oh, this so is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is different. Like, I thought this was going to be just, you know, your regular run-of-the-mill leadership coaching. Um, and you're, you are highly strategic. I mean, you're, you, you have a strategic mind. At the mm -hmm. same time, though, you are a metaphysician. And um, a lot of your work revolves around womanhood and sexuality as well. Um, and the, the, the TEDx talk that you did, which will include the link to it in the show notes, is I believe it's the same title as your upcoming book, isn't it? It is. Yes. Yeah. So the sexy side of success from the boardroom to the bedroom. Redefining feminine leadership from the yes. boardroom to the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So why... Why sex? Why, why bring that in? <laughs> uh, why sex? Wow. So, um, <laughs> um, so because, because my story, um, when, when you all get a, an opportunity to watch, to watch the Ted talk, you'll see that a big part of my story, um, is centered around not, not, not so much sex, but a construct, an idea, a situation, and a paradigm that the world, um, where the world would center, would center sex. The other reason is because, and this more specifically, is that in the years that I've been doing this kind of work, the, the areas that I have found where women have been conditioned, socially conditioned, um, religiously conditioned, um, and even, um, I'm, I find more and more um, where, you know, diff, uh, based on the race you are, mm. conditioned to give away our power, our sex, God, and money. Mm. Those are the areas where we've been socially conditioned to give away our power. And even in certain times, legally required to give away our power, right, yeah. throughout the diaspora. And so I began to find that... Um, so if we go back to Napoleon Hill's Thinking Grow Rich, there's a chapter in there where he talks about sexual transmutation. And in my studies, um, you find that sexual energy is life force energy. And so I want to be clear, I'm not talking, I'm not, I don't want to limit this to the act of sex itself. I'm talking about the energy of creation, the highest form of, of, of creation, the highest form of life force creation is the act of sex. It's the space in which um, life is created, literal life. That energy, passion, drive, 
is the strongest force on the planet. It is the energy, passion, and drive out of which everything is created. Everything. Again, I'm not talking about the act of sex. I'm talking about the passion, the drive behind it. So when we see, um, even in movies, we see certain characters in movies. I'm thinking off the top of my head right now, the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, and how, or you see very powerful men, their, their, their drive, their passion, the thing that is the volition behind the creative, the creative energy, the, the ideas that show up. It is the same exact energy as sexual energy. So I'm laying that foundation um, before I move on. Society has taught women to suppress that. Society has taught women that that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to, it's, it's again, it's performative. It's for the pleasure of men. Society has taught women to be shamed by it. Mm. So let's bring it out of the bedroom into the boardroom. If a woman speaks up for herself, if a woman has a passionate um, counter to an idea that's placed on the table, let's say by a man, right? Women have been shamed in that space. Oh, she's, she's frantic. She's, you know, hysterical. She's too emotional. Right. But a man can show up and be, we just saw it in the, in the Brett Kavanaugh situation, right? Yeah. All right. We, if had that been a woman responding that way, but for him, it's just, he's passionate about his position. That is the same energy that I am speaking about. Both can be used in negative and positive ways. And so the idea of reclaiming the right to your own sexual expression, your sexual sovereignty, without it being viewed through the lens of anybody else's judgment, mm. without, without it being, without giving over your power to the questioning of someone. That, so. I, I, one of the, one of the things that I, um, prescriptions I give my coaching clients is, is that every single day, I think every woman, every single day should have an orgasm. Yeah, Why? Because that. it, because <laughs> it activates, it act, it puts us back in touch with the idea of pleasure, right? It puts us back in touch with activating the energy, the chi, the life force energy within our lives. And from that space, we can harness that energy that, that and, and move it into um, creativity in our businesses, creativity in our lives, creativity even in our prayer and meditation around um, moving challenges and blocks. But it's a space that we are reticent to talk about, that we talk about it in ways where um, it is still rooted in somebody else's definition, idea, or space of giving us permission. And I'll tell you when I really began to publicly speak out about this being a part of the work that I do is when Beyonce released I Am Sasha Fierce. Mm. It was after she had had Blue Ivy and the world was appalled at the idea that a woman who was now a, a wife and a mother would have the nerve to talk about her sexual expression, her pleasure, mm her desire for her husband, let alone the fact we're talking about a grown ass married woman, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but I looked at that and I thought, and then, and there, there were other layers of that too, just the way the conversation would show up and um, from the, you know, from the fingertips of, of some white women as well. And that's a whole nother layer um, when we talk about black women and sexual expression, black women in loving their bodies, our curves, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
And so that's when I really began to observe it. Um, that there was this, there was this shaming around black women and sexual expression and pleasure. That there was this space where even in 20, I think 15 at the time was that maybe that was when it, no, how old is Blue Ivy? Six. So 20, 2012, 2011, 2012, that there was this shaming around the idea that a woman outside of a man elevating her to that space and saying, this is how you should use your sexual expression, but her doing it within her own, um, you know, of her own volition, her doing it in her own will, her saying, yes, there's this part of me, but I'm a grown woman. And this, there's this part of me as well. And I'm no longer going to splinter myself so that I fit into this, you know, small consumable package that the world can market. The world can, um, continue to, to define and control that I also have this passionate part of myself, this sensual and sexual part of myself, at times this raunchy part of myself. And yes, I can then also go into the boardroom and negotiate multi-million dollar deals. I can go over here and be a philanthropist. I can go home and be a mother to my, to my child, um, now children, and a wife to my husband and a good citizen in the world. And all, I don't have to dissect myself to fit the narrative that makes you most comfortable. And so it's one of the areas that, um, it's also one of the areas that, that I, I began to discover um, a through line that I wasn't intentionally looking for, but that in a large number of the women that have shown up in conference with me or in group with me or in my healing retreats, my self-care retreats, that a large number of women have experienced some type of sexual trauma something, whether it was literally that they were sexually assaulted, molested, or whether it was the idea that they were given around sex through religious programming, the idea that they were given around sex through what their mothers taught them or their aunts taught them, mm -hmm. that it sometime, somehow created a traumatic idea around sex, something that says you're bad, you're dirty, you're nasty. You should not do that, that, that women should not get pleasure, that the only kind of girls that, you know, do that, do this, right? Or there, there's this kind of woman and there's, there's those, those are some of the messages I grew up with, yeah. right? Grew up in a very yeah. religious household, right? Yeah. And so some of those things create this disconnection between you and this natural, beautiful part of who you are as a human being, who you are as a woman and access to, access to that life force energy access to the part of yourself that allows you to surrender to that kind of pleasure right mm -hmm. and that's something that i talk about in um women sex god and money it's also something i go over in the higher art of womanhood when we walk through the areas of power in the body you know to get to a fully self-actualized and self-defined uh feminine leader mm -hmm. so yeah that's the answer to the yeah why why sex why not <laughs> I love you. I love you too. And man. and just to bring it, yeah, just to kind of bring it everything that you've talked about there into what we're talking about here, this good ancestorship, you know, as women speaking generally and broadly, you know, there's as you said, so much that we have been conditioned 
with around around our sexuality and even I mean for me what I found was it was also just sensuality just the this you know I would for me what I've discovered is I take great pleasure in my senses being stimulated whether it's smelling nice things or touching nice things or being touched in a nice way or you know that as well it's like um well that's bad you know or that's frivolous or that's um an extra thing that you get after you've done all this utilitarian stuff after you've been productive after you've been efficient after you've achieved that becomes something that you get afterwards you know kind of like oh well i've done all this work i'm gonna go get a massage oh right right? Like I want to buy myself flowers, but I don't have an occasion to buy. So I'm going to wait until someone buys it for me or I've done something so that I can have it. And so I have, as part of my pleasure practice, when I think about what gives, when I start thinking about what are the things that give me pleasure, it's the, it's the fact of being able to enjoy something just for the sake of enjoying it. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, I want to interject this here. Um, that yes and i i also want to make make the distinction between pleasure Mm. for for this for the senses that's you know um um, i'll often say to my clients like go and have your favorite dessert and savor Mm. the way that it feels in your mouth and the way that um for example i love blood orange sorbet like, so the, the burst of flavor in my mouth, like that, like have that sensual experience yeah. with, you know, what, whatever that, is. when the next time you go get a pedicure, like really have the sensual experience of the foot massage or the foot rub. But then there's this sex mm. and I'm, I'm, I'm very specific and very clear around now I'm talking sex, not sexual energy that you in the in the experience of sex as an adult woman as a woman that you that you that you create and it um that you create and you require that you create and you require pleasure that you create and you require enjoyment that means you must learn yourself that means you must be open and comfortable teaching your partner and sharing with your partner. There are times when I've worked with, there, there are times when I've worked with um, a woman client who happens to be married and her and her husband may not have had sex in years. And so create, I create a practice soul gazing and different things like that where you reconnect, where you reconnect to, and I am talking pleasure for her sake. Hmm. Pleasure orgasm for her sake. like it, it seems to be that, that that's why that's why the title of the book and the work that I'm doing in that in that writing is so to me I believe so important because there are things that we as, as women have been shamed into not talking about like my, I'm a business owner but I don't talk about money I'm a woman but I don't talk about sex yeah. I'm a married woman but I don't talk about pleasure and orgasm oh my god she said the orgasm word like those are all parts of how we become fully expressed whole entire human beings. Now I want to bring it specific to black women because the narrative that has been written about us, everybody across the diaspora has taken ownership of the narrative of our sexual expression. 
we're Jezebels, right? We're thoughts, we're hot and top Venus. We were used for our, the act of sex was used for the production of what the more chattel in chattel slavery, more bodies to serve the rest of the world. And I'm saying reclaim the ownership of every aspect in every area of your body, especially the area of your sensual sexual pleasure. Mm. That it not be left up to anyone else, that it not be left up even to your husband or your mate. That right. you that you harness, you know, that energy and that you become intentional around how that energy is used in service to you and your pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And when and you know, when we're talking about good ancestorship, we are a huge part of that conversation is the healing, the the inner healing. And so what we Absolutely. what the work that we do in our lifetime now for ourselves has an impact on those who will come after us. Um, and so this is a really important conversation, especially now when we're talking in the time of, of Me Too and Time's yeah. Up and you know these really important um, discussions this, the, and, and really important time of reckoning and healing. Um, yes. it, it's, it's really important. It is. It is vitally important. It is, I mean, I, I know we have limited time here, but there's so... There's so much even in that space that, you know, that can be talked about, but that it is, it is vital. It is vitally important. Yeah. Um, it is vitally important, even to the extent that, you know, you, you mentioned the Me Too, the Me Too movement, like even the whole way that that came about and had to, how we had to go reclaim it, mm-hmm. how we had to say, wait a minute, we started this. Right. And it started because our stories are being ignored. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much there. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, but unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time. Well, they, the listeners have come to the end of their time with you. I get to speak to you tomorrow, so I'm very blessed. Um, but this has been such a beautiful conversation, and okay. I am so grateful for all the wisdom you got to share with your wisdom highlights, all of the wisdom <laughs> And I made it through without crying. We made it through without crying. We'll do, we'll cry tomorrow. <laughs> we cried. We almost cried right before we hit record, right? Yeah. Um, but it has been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, and we will link to your TED Talk. I really want to encourage people to check out because your story is really fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the questions I've asked you is, how did you get this way? And you were like, I wasn't always this way. And so <laughs> your TED Talk will really help people to understand where you've come from and what that journey has been like for you. Um, as we close out, the last question I want to ask you is, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Wow. Um... So I have a daughter, I have a, I have a daughter that is 30 years of age. And um, one of the things that I was determined to do, um, and at the time I didn't frame it in being a good ancestor, for me it was um, part of legacy, was to heal. I think the most, one of the most powerful things that we can do for um, our children one of the most powerful things we can do for the next generation is to heal, is to, is to question, is to question the status quo, 
to question the ways that we show up in the world, the ways that we react, and to question how it became this way and heal the thing that does not serve us. I think that that healing requires deep introspective work, but I believe that through that healing, we get to create a new narrative. We get to create a new blueprint. We get to create, even if nothing more, simply be the model. We get to be the model that the, the next generation gets to observe. Or when they read about us, and so for example, when they read about Layla Saad in the history books, they'll read about a woman who moved at the speed of inspiration and launched a 28-day challenge on social media, not knowing that it would have a global impact and that it would transform the lives of other people. So for, for me, it simply means to be a good ancestor is to do your own healing work so that the uniquely divine and powerful purpose that you were put here to do can be shared with the world in a way that gives them a model or example for a different way that we can show up in the world and be. Mm. I love that. Thank you. You are welcome. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at, at goodancestorpodcast. And drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being a good ancestor. <laughs>